0: Hello and welcome to the Mike Figures podcast. I'm again joined by my friend and associate, Ali. Hi, Mike. Hey, good morning. And I was thinking, Ali, yesterday in the spirit of not over preparing these podcasts, you know, of what would be interesting to talk about. And stuff started to come into my mind. I would sort of say one's failures are the things that mark your life more than the successes. And you learn so much more from your failures so i thought i'd jump into probably my biggest film failure um, experience not the film necessarily itself but the experience which was the making of a, a film in hollywood called mr jones
1: starring richard gear Lane O'Lean and delroy lindo
0: absolutely and and lots of other very good players too it came about in the following way i'd made internal affairs with richard Gere, and that had kind of worked very well it definitely gave me a reputation with my first Hollywood film. And then I jumped into, uh, possibly naively, into uh, my next film, which was Liebestrom. Mm. I turned down Thelma and Louise, which Ridley Scott was very keen for me to do. And I don't regret it. I really mm. wanted to do Liebestrom, so I did it, and for better or for worse. And obviously, it was a bit of a disaster in terms of, how it was perceived by the public and and one of the things i was thinking about was to differentiate between personal success and failure and and the other kind which is when you try and do something and you fail in your effort to create the film so in the case of lieberstrom i didn't feel i failed i loved that film unfortunately people didn't agree with me you know, my audiences the critics and so on did not agree but the film's still out there and it I think it's one of Mark Commode's favorite films of mine yeah it is and he always talks about it and it has its own little fan clubs. So it was worth it but anyway I then kind of I kind of meandered for a while looking for my next film I got involved with production um, with Al Pacino which mm. was a fantastic experience but the film never got made.
1: You do have to share your stories about that someday.
0: Though. Well, I, I mean, Al deserves his own podcast, and, and it's, a, it's a delightful story, my, my, my romance with Al Pacino. And then Richard Gere, who we'd become friends, he contacted me and, and sent me the script of Mr. Jones, and I, it did appeal to me because mm-hmm. it was pretty dark. And, and the theme was bipolar mm-hmm. and uh, manic depression. And at that point, everybody Eric Roth had written mm, the first yeah. screenplay it had substance. it was about something real. The more research I did, the more enthusiastic I was about making a film that would highlight this this disease and talk about it in a way that, in a way that films can and and maybe help things you know so i i did I jumped in I was given an office on the on the lot, and yeah it was a proper hollywood kind of setup and we started mm. casting it was interesting process casting because i actually went to sweden to see lena olin in ingmar bergman's production of miss julie wow yeah um i didn't think it was very good i have to say <laughs> it was very uh theatrical very uh 19th century and very mannered in a way that Albert Finney always talks about dandruff acting, that thing when Mm. actors self-consciously brush their clothes and straighten their cuffs, and there was a lot of that kind of acting going on. But Lena Olin was very interesting. and I And I really pushed for Lena to be in the film. Um,
1: She wasn't really known at the time in in Hollywood, was she?
0: I think she'd done a film with my friend Paul Mazursky. Oh, okay. uh, Called um, something, A Love Story. Uh, But no, she wasn't known. she had an agent uh, and all the rest of it. So I really, really, really pushed to get her in, I think. You know, it was still the point when I was thinking, let's get the best actors, you mm-hmm. know. I did meet some very interesting American actresses, but I pushed for Lena. Um, and so we, as we got closer and closer to uh, production um, and we were looking at the script and so on, I had my first meeting with a character called... Ray Stark.
1: Legendary independent producer. Uh, I guess by this time he'd been in his early 70s, right? Yeah. And he'd done films like Funny Girl and West Side Story and The Misfits with Gable and Monroe. So
0: Amazing sort of credentials, yeah. right? A Hollywood legend. Yes. Uh, a lunch was set up between me and Ray Stark for us to meet each other. So it was kind of a tricky situation because the film was being made at TriStar. Mike Medavoy was the head of Tristar, but Ray Stark, as I later discovered to my cost, was really the godfather. He, he kind of ran things? He ran everything. Okay. And everybody kowtowed to him, you know. I don't remember where we met, but we, maybe we even met at his house. I can't remember. I blotted so much from my mind about Ray Stark now. But the one thing I do remember about the lunch, obviously we talked about the script. Now, Let me describe him. He looks like Mr. Magoo. (laughs) He's got thick glasses. He's got a mean little face. He's Mm -hmm. a little fella. Mm -hmm. But you know, as soon as you meet him, he's very powerful. And he's very mean, right? And he's watching me like a hawk. And then out of the blue, he said to me, have you ever fucked an opera singer? (laughs) Very personal question. It is. I took the fifth and I said, no. No. you he said yeah he said i once fucked this opera singer from behind and got her to sing la traviata at the same time wow it's an image that's very difficult to erase from the memory of ray i was forewarned i thought wow he's he's a tricky guy he's a dirty little guy but maybe that's his wacky sense of humor and i don't get it or whatever but Anyway, we jumped in immediately. There were problems and I'll jump over those quite quickly. First of all, the script and mm-hmm. I remember I was naive. I I'd come from the people show the idea that we all kind of do things. We're making as they say we're all making the same film. And the problems with the script seemed to compound at a certain point. Nobody was happy. Richard wasn't happy. And then and I was looking and I was thinking I can see what the problem is and I actually went out and bought my first laptop mm. um, because I and put a writing program on it I remember having to learn how to do the writing program and I just went back to my house and from Friday to Sunday night I just rewrote the script I mean I tidied it up and I did what I felt needed to be done and I can't kind of think great I fixed it so I came into my office on the Monday, and I'd been talking to everybody about doing this, and I sent a copy of it to everybody, to all the producers, to Richard, Mm -hmm. to Mike Medavoy. I didn't send one to Ray, um, because he was officially sort of floating in the clouds, not really hands-on.
1: Godfathering.
0: Yeah, so then um, I didn't hear anything. It was a Monday, so come Friday, I haven't heard a word from anybody. No one's even acknowledged that they got the script. And then finally it became clear to me someone explained you know you weren't commissioned to write the script you don't have a contract you don't exist and the script doesn't really exist either so forget it Mm -hmm. so it was never acknowledged it was never referenced it was just basically dumped
1: was there a big difference between the rewrite that you did and the original script that you you had laid hands on
0: you know, it was more a question of sequencing, like this scene maybe would be better there. Also, because I was the director. Of course. Uh, I wanted to start putting my, my spin on it as yeah. well. And I, to me, it was just like, I'm just... Uh,
1: you are the decision maker.
0: Yeah. And I didn't think anything was wrong with that. And I, you know, th- this was a big learning curve all the way. So then um, we then proceeded and we got closer to starting. We started building the sets. I I used a lot of the crew that I'd used before on Lieberstraum. Mm-hmm. Same DP, the same production designer, I think the same first assistant. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we found locations in San Diego, and, and we started shooting. And that's when everything started to go horribly wrong. Mm.
1: You had a budget on this film, a good budget, didn't you?
0: Hollywood film, no problem. There was never a problem with the money.
1: So where did did you feel that once production started, things started to go wrong?
0: Pretty much as soon as they started to see Dailies. So the story was about a bipolar manic depressive who was a brilliant musician, Mm -hmm. who when he was high, was the most attractive person in the world, Richard Gere. Mm. You know, could do anything, play the piano, ride a motorbike, you know, seduce women, Mm -hmm. go on a spending spree, all the bipolar traits and then suddenly when you hit the decline mm-hmm. and it can be overnight i read the clinical the the bible on, on yeah. bipolarity you, you drop like a stone the statistics for suicide were terrifying the other statistic that had popped up and this was relevant to the script was in the script he has an affair with his therapist played, yeah played by lena olin and then i started to kind of unearth all the statistics about Sexual relationships between patient and doctor, and they're incredibly high. Are they? Well, the whole point being that they're not monitored. They're incredibly intimate. You're spilling your guts. You're crying, and then there's a mother or a father figure, and the mutual attraction often is overpowering. So I started to shoot, mm. um, and with my production designer, DP, you know, he's in a state mental hospital, so. I didn't make it like a real statement in hospital, but I, it wasn't the most cheerful place in the world. Mm-hmm. And that was the first problem, that they hated the look of it. It was too depressing. Mm. I think Mike Medavoy said, you know, maybe you should repaint the set. I don't mean literally, I mean metaphorically. And I thought, well, what does that mean, you know? And then the first of the notes started to come from Ray Stark, don't improvise, because I always let my actors ad lib or whatever. And if I see an opportunity, I'll add some lines. Mm-hmm. And then straight away, Lena Olin, why has she got her hair up? And why is her skirt so long?" <laughs> and I said, "Because those are the rules mm-hmm. about clinical um, psychotherapy. You cannot show cleavage. you can't show your legs, and your hair should always be up. Those were the rules."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he said, "Fuck the rules." You know I made a film with Barbara Streisand, you know, um, where she plays a therapist, and you know she looked really sexy, you mm-hmm. know. And then he started to put pressure on Lena Olin's agent right? and say, you know, your client doesn't look good in Mike's film. You know, he's not letting her be sexy and, you know, she's not going to get any work. Hmm. So then I suddenly realized there'd be the visits on set by her agent and then Lena would be very insecure and so on. And so And this was a gradual kind of Of creepy process, not like immediate, just that suddenly, day by day, incrementally, I realized it was the studio versus me. And then Ray would ring me up on the set and give me a bollocking about improvising and tell me what to do. He'd visit the set. And this thing just kind of, they just, these elements added up. Um, So by the time we were well into the film, there were other problems, I started to Then internally have a big problem with my DP, lovely guy, Juan Ruiz yeah, Very expressive, film noir kind of photographer. My mistake in a way, perfect for Liebestram, not perfect for Mr. Jones, using a lot of color. Mm -hmm. And we ended up having a very funny row about a light. I sort of said, you know, Richard was about to commit suicide, he was drinking a whole bottle of whiskey and I did a controlled zoom shot in his studio. And he had a light on his face. And um, and I said to Juan, where's that light coming from? Um, meaning, you know, what are we saying the source is? Because he's in a studio and the windows are behind him. So where's the light on his face coming from? Mm. And he, I think, was pissed off with me by that point. And I, he very he's Spanish. He sort of, I said, where's the light coming from? And he pointed at the light and he said, it's coming from that light. <laughs> and I went, I see that Juan. Um, but what I'm saying is, where are we saying that the light's coming from? Yeah, He again pointed at the What's light. What's the source? From that light. So, after about the fourth, from that light, I said, let me put it another way. See that light, <laughs> move it. And he went, okay, I move it, I quit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, he didn't quit, he came back yeah. the next day, but our relationship was in tatters by mm-hmm. then. Richard was obviously my friend but also a famous Hollywood actor who's also getting huge pressure from the studio. But pretty much, re- he was good, Richard. He was. Mm-hmm. He and I had, a, had, had a, and a... And I think he was so brilliant in the film and the stuff that we shot was beautiful. I was very happy with it. Um, we had the addition of the wonderful actor Delroy Lindo. Great actor. Fantastic actor. Yeah. Now, I play table tennis on the set you yeah. know, just at like three in the morning to keep my blood moving <laughs> and stay awake. And so one day Delroy said to me, I I hear you play table tennis. And I said, Yeah, I love it. You? He said, Yeah, I play a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. He said, We should play. And I went, that would be great. So uh one day at the table tennis and he came up and he was uh, he said, Should we play? And I went, Yeah. He served first. And the way he threw the ball up in the air, very high, and the way he was holding the bat informed me before he even hit the ball that he hadn't been quite straight with me.
1: You were in trouble.
0: He played for Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was fantastic. It's like, mm. okay, this we're in a different league. But he was wonderful to work with. I then brought in all those kind of performance art type actors that I knew. Mm. I'd done theater work back in McCree with and so on, but American actors. And I basically said you know you are the you are the residents of this mental hospital
1: yeah I was gonna say the inmates
0: yeah and I said so you know what just make up a character be that character and stay with it and I want to do a session which I added in order for us to understand why a therapist like Lena Olin would allow herself to fall in love with Richard Gere Mm -hmm. who she knows has these bipolar issues I wanted to put her in a context of the absolutely deadening 24-7 life of someone dealing with really disturbed patients in a state mental hospital. Because to be there in the first place, you're pretty disturbed. So my fantastic actors all came up with these different characters. And I brought them in for a day, and I just said, okay, I just want Lena to be listening and making notes while you do your thing. So we had a whole day of just filming these extreme scenes of, Mm -hmm. of... mental disorder
1: you try to add basically context and layering which is something that hollywood really frowns yeah. upon a lot of the time
0: so that by the time she gets to have a session with richard gear it's a no-brainer why you know this wonderful charismatic yeah. man who's very funny handsome talented but wrecked mm-hmm. why it brings out all of her maternal but she's also attracted to him and he's a huge flirt yeah in the film and he kind of reads her like a book, and she's divorced. Mm. He knows exactly which buttons to press because he's clever. But I wanted to, I created this context, so I did that. When the studio saw the dailies, Ray Stark went through the roof. <laughs> it's quite funny, when they actually came to visit on the set, they avoided all my actors because they thought I'd actually got mentally disturbed people <laughs> to do a kind of quasi documentary moment. Mm. So that was another nail in my coffin.
1: You say always Ray Stark, but, you know, at the time, Mike Metavoy was the head of the studio, wasn't he? Didn't he sort of come by at all? or?
0: Sure. I mean, again, I understand in hindsight, to be the head of a studio with someone like Ray Stark sitting on your head is yeah. an unenviable position to mm-hmm. be in because he was basically being controlled by Ray. Mike's a nice guy. You know, he wants to be everybody's friend. Mm-hmm. He, you, he always called me Mikey, and he put his arm around me and... At one point, he marched me across the studio with his arm around me. He went, Mikey, Mikey, you've mm. got to understand. It's not the film you're making now that is important. It's the film you might make next. That's what's important. So you've That's got to... And then he rang up Jeff Berg, my agent, and he said, you know, Mike's problem is he doesn't understand the social contract.
1: What was the social contract, according to Mike Medavoy?
0: Well, it's, it's the Hollywood social contract, which is, you know... Be a good boy, do what you're told, get paid a lot of money, mm-hmm. buy a house to show you mean it, that you're not just, you know, commuting, which is what I did. Give all the signs that you are prepared to join the club and abide by those rules. That is the social contract. If mm-hmm. you do that, you'll make a ton of money. Yeah. And you'll never have to, you know, worry again in your life. You know, and you'll have a nice life, California. What's your problem, Mike? California. Just calm down, shut up. Yeah. Stop arguing with Ray and get on with it because I didn't do that. And I didn't do that because, to me, that's boring. And what's really interesting is filmmaking. So anyway, I carried on. The final moment was on the last week of the shoot. Ray was, like, upping his game, upping his his phone calls. And I was having a particularly trying day on the set, where I think we were in San Diego. And during that time, I also got ill. I I ruptured a disc, Mm. and the studio put me on... Yeah, basically the equivalent of oxytocin, you know, so actually Vicodin. Of course. I became addicted to Vicodin. Uh, they sent a magic doctor to inject me with something that was incredible. <laughs> so I went from being on the floor and able to move to an hour later on the top of a roof, explaining to Richard Gere how he should walk along this precipice.
1: Yes, you. I know, I remember that scene.
0: Yeah, but I did it without any safety harness. Oh. And I remember my my daughter Romney was on the... On the said and and my producer annie and they, i suddenly looked down and they were both looking up and they were terrified and I mm-hmm. said mike please please come down and i went whoa you <laughs> know like pretending to wobble i was off my face yeah so that was another factor part of my treatment was i used to go to a doctor called dr hertz <laughs> in malibu he was the chiropractor to the stars mm. carrie Fish oh. and i used to hang out together
1: that's another podcast. Anyway, yeah.
0: By which I mean we were both in traction. Oh, so right. I'd be hung from one doorway. Carrie Fish would hung from another doorway. And we would be bouncing <laughs> on these kind of traction devices, mm-hmm. talking to each other. So it literally hanging out. So uh, <laughs> all this was going on. Anyway, Ray called me up. and He went, yeah, yeah. He had this horrible voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to fucking know this. You're going to fucking know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I listened for a while. I just had enough. And mm-hmm. I went, I said, you know what, Ray? Go and fuck yourself, and I put the phone down. Somebody overheard it and said, "You didn't just say go fuck yourself to Ray Stark." And I went, "I did, and it felt good." He went, "Might feel good now, but he's going to kill you." Mm-hmm. And he, you know what? He's not in a hurry. He'll get you. Absolutely correct. Yeah. I finished the film. I went back to England. I edited it. I had an editor, this woman who'd edited, you know, a film for Bertolucci was supposedly my friend. Ray Stark got to her eventually and literally bribed her. Mm -hmm. He said, "Ah, I know you want to make a film yourself. I'll give you a film to direct. But secretly, I want you to do what I tell you, not what Mike tells you. So all this was going on. It was horrible. One of the producers came over, and he wept, and he loved it. And he was mumbling, Oscar, Oscar, Oscar. You know, this is a fantastic film. It was. It was a very good film. I kind of put Ray out of my mind.
1: As one would do after such a traumatic, stressful experience. Well, yeah. like, you
0: know, I was working on the basis that if you then deliver something kind of great, then those differences would be shelved in, in the common good of the film.
1: Yeah. How naive. People have long memories, I think, in Hollywood. Well, that's
0: all he had by then. <laughs> so then I had to go back to Los Angeles and show the film. And again, it was one of those um, moments where you screen the film, All the executives come in, private screening room, obviously, state-of-the-art speakers, huge screen. Richard was there, all the producers, the writers. They watched the film, and when the film finished, there was complete silence, and nobody would look at me. Ray Stark was there, Mike Medivoy was there. I think Mike said, let's go to the conference room, so we all kind of got up to go to the conference room, and then on the way there, Ray Stark literally grabbed Mike Medavoy and he said, come to my office. And he pulled him away. And Mike said, Oh, you guys go ahead, I'll see you there. Mm. So he we went to the conference room and sat there in silence. I mean normally people if they hate the film they go, Wow, the cinematography for some I love the score. <laughs> not a peep. Mm-hmm. Literally silence, and including Richard and, you know, everyone was just sitting there. Obviously it wasn't good. They so didn't like it. They weren't saying anything, and it's not a question of they liked it or they didn't like it. There was a power thing going on. So finally, the door opens and Ray and Mike come in. And Ray is grinning like he's the happiest I've ever seen him. You know, he's so happy. Mike looks dejected and really unhappy. And we sit down and then Ray just looks at me with this big, huge grin. And he kind of goes, well, it's a piece of shit. It's a piece of fucking shit. And you know what? Mike... There's two things gonna happen. I'm gonna give you notes, and you can cut it exactly as I say, or you can leave, and I'll get someone else to do it. Your call. So I absorbed that. I mean, it's not to say I wasn't expecting something, but it was pretty to the point. Hmm. And then uh, I thought about it, and I said, actually, can I raise an issue with you, Bray? You know, when I looked up my contract last time, I saw a thing that said executive decisions about the cut. And remember, this was my my director's cut that I was giving them, and technically I had another chance. You you deliver your cut, and then you can, you know, they give it. Yeah,
1: yeah, usually that's how it works. You give them a cut, and then you sort of cut it a little bit more. Based on their notes or your
0: mutual notes or whatever, and then you deliver a second cut. Yeah. So I said, last time I looked, and that executive decision rested with Mike Medavoy, and Ray just kept on smiling, and he said, what do you say, Mike? And Mike didn't even look up. He just went, I refer my decision to ray and he just abdicated his head of the studio yeah (laughs) he just abdicated
1: yeah and it's someone you know he is someone with a you know he was was with ua in the 70s and with orion pictures in the 80s Mm. so this is someone who had like a big track record in film but someone
0: who also understood the social contract yeah i mean never a a truer word spoken and i often when i'm driving i ponder on that the social contract. yes they were right i was wrong Hmm. The next part of it, which lasted well over another year, mm. I, I hung on. I then discovered that Gabriella, my Italian editor, had betrayed me mm-hmm. because the next screening I did a recut and I thought, okay, I'm trying to save this. I sat down in the row and I said, where's Gabriella? Where's my uh, editor? I went, oh, she's taking a vacation in Costa Rica. I went, my editor? Okay. And they started. Um, playing the film and I went, just a second, can you stop the film? The reels are in the wrong sequence. And someone said, no, they're not. This is the new cut. Mm. And she had totally, totally betrayed me. And I've never spoken to her since. I've never seen her since. They then brought in another editor. Mm -hmm. They then brought in legions of rewriters, Mm. paying them huge amounts of money just for one funny line to try and make the film, in their opinion, watchable, You know, not too dark, the trailer. Again, lovely Mike, you know, at one point rang me up and he said, Mike, I'm going to send you over the trailer we're cutting so you know the movie you're supposed to be making. (laughs) And they would got something like Aerosmith to do a kind of wacky pop song, which was a bit like kind of, he's wacky, he's crazy, he's a lot of fun, but he's not dangerously ill. Now, that was the tone of the the thing. I still persevered and we wrote some new scenes and we went and then did a reshoot, Mm -hmm. quite an extensive reshoot.
1: You directed the reshoots. So. Yep, I stayed
0: with it. Yeah. Although we now had a new editor who was a lovely guy, but unfortunately was being paid by the studio to come in and work for them. Yeah. It was made clear to me he did not work for me anymore. Mm-hmm. That's an odd situation as well. They f- got rid of the music. Boom, you know. Yeah. They tried lots of variations. Um, and then, yeah, it just got worse and worse. There was another preview. They promised me that uh, they would defend me other people sort of came in and sort of said okay we know ray's been horrible to you you know people who have now become very very big executives in hollywood Mm. were rising stars within tristar at that point and they said we're going to do another reshoot but we're not in a rush so don't worry about it you know we want to get this right we want to make the movie you want to make and then what happened was i needed to work so Mm. again with britley scott i ended up doing the Browning version with him producing and Mm -hmm. the minute I signed the deal to do the Browning version they jumped in and said oh we've changed our mind we're going to do the reshoot now and they brought in a British director who I find hard to forgive called John Amiel oh yeah yeah. he'd done the singing detective and he'd done a film with Richard and Jodie Foster Summersby. and I did actually talk to John and just say I'd rather you didn't and he, in his arrogance, he even recut the film mm-hmm. without ever looking at the dailies or anything. So he said he took over the film mm. um, and became the de facto director, editor, whatever. So the final part of this story, which is quite funny, they then reshot, re-edited, re did the whole nine yards. I was considering taking my name off and mm. doing an Alan Smithy. Alan Smithy. That's suicide in Hollywood. It is. Because they'll never forgive you. you know? And I was d- dissuaded. Yeah. I remember going on the lot. I had to go back for a meeting and suddenly being told that I wasn't allowed to bring my car on the lot. I mean, having previously that's, that's, having had a parking spot, my own office, that was all then taken away from me. So petty. And then they did a test screening with an audience somewhere just outside of, of Los Angeles. When I went. I got there early and um, Richard was there with Cindy Crawford, and, and we all eventually trooped into the cinema, you're not supposed to be, the dr- actors aren't supposed to be there. And yeah, that's it's unusual. And the director's really technically not supposed to be there, but they was, you know, we snuck in the back row, mm-hmm. and we watched the film. And I just, you know, my mouth dropped open when I saw what they'd done. I mean, and their attempt to make it nice, and to, to make him cuddly, and to take all the sting out of it. And I just I sat next to Richard. And I'm sure I was doing what I'm doing now, just shaking my (laughs) head in disbelief. And finally, just before the film finishes, somebody taps you on the shoulder and said, "You should leave now, okay? Because you know the audience are going to see you." So we got up and we were led out by somebody in the dark through a side door, through another space with curtains and so on. And Richard looked at me and he said, Well, what do you think? And I went, Richard, it's really sad. I think you've gone from being almost a cert for an Academy nomination into being, This is a fucking joke. Mm-hmm. And he went, That is so unfair. you know." And then somebody went, Shut the fuck up. <laughs> and I realized we were in the next cinema. Yeah. <laughs> there was a curtain there, but in a quiet part of another screening altogether. And we were having this very public conversation. So then they did that. You know the test cards and all of that, and we waited. I remember being somehow—I can't remember why—but in a kind of courtyard outside the cinema. I was smoking and uh, just shaking my head, going, mm. "Wow." I mean, I'd done another film by then, so I think the pain had started to go. And I was in pre-production for Leaving Las Vegas, so. I was, wow. So this you know, would be nineteen ninety-three. Yeah. Yeah. So I was okay, and uh, and ironically, Leaving Las Vegas turned out to be the film that. Mr. Jones should have been, Mm. um, similar kind of logline, if you like. Yeah. Anyway, I was there, and I suddenly saw Ray Stark through the glass doors, and he saw me, and he suddenly came out, and beaming. I mean, I met him a few times afterwards, always like, hey, how are you doing? It was super friendly, like, you know, I think him, it was just a game, you know. Yeah. And he came out, and he said, uh, so, what do you think? I said, I think it's a piece of fucking shit, Ray. Mm-hmm. Spend all that money. And I said, it's just going to go straight down the toilet. Yeah. And he went, well, you know, it's what you say, you know. And behind him, I could see the glass doors that had come out, And then an Asian guy who was working in the cinema just looked. And then I saw him lock the door. So we're now in a courtyard. And then Ray goes, well, anyway, you know, we'll see. <laughs> and he turned and he went to the door. And he suddenly couldn't get back into the cinema. <laughs> and he was banging on the door. And I just went you're locked out. (laughs) And it was, for me, a very small but kind of sweet moment of like a closure somehow. Life
1: does throw up those little moments sometimes to savor.
0: The film came out.
1: It didn't do well.
0: I mean, you said you read something about it, right?
1: Well, yeah. So the production history is on Wikipedia where basically it says... Uh, to paraphrase, that the film was taken out of your hands. You finished shooting, I think, a year. So the film was released in 93, I was believe. Was Yeah. And it said that you finished shooting kind of early 92. And then it was taken out of your hands. And they basically decided to make it a happier film mm. than what your cut was. And I'm kind of curious how different would was your cut than the finished product that was released?
0: The older I get, the more I realize that the details of how you put a film together are what make the film. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, I think it was Polanski who said, you know, it's like a Swiss clock. One part and it's too slow. You take one part away and the film will stop. And getting it right is really what filmmaking is about. You have to listen to the audience when, you know, the audience are responding negatively or going to the toilet or whatever. You kind of go, clearly, this, this is boring for them. So... By the time you add in a score, that would make a huge amount of difference. So when I'd done the score with my with Anthony Marinelli, who I you know worked with on internal then, affairs, yeah, and then later on 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 a bunch of film, mm. Anthony's a fantastic guy to be partners with. Mm-hmm. We'd done a really beautiful score, I think, and. They'd put on a kind of orchestral score
1: by Maurice Jarre.
0: Yeah, great composer. Uh, yeah, you know, but Barnes not Arabian, right for this. You not know. right for this. I remember getting a note at one point from Mike Medavoy going, "How about we do a hang gliding scene with Richard Gere?" And I went, "But how would he get from a state mental hospital? How would he get a hang glider?" And I guess his response was, "We get a screenwriter and we make that work." You know, mm. maybe he breaks out and he steals one or something. You know, but they did a scene which I was nauseating with him and Lena Olin on the beach at Santa Monica doing kind of tippy toe paddling, holding hands like proper lovers.
1: Beach kind of is on the poster by the way. It's those two on the on the beach. Oh is it how they, sweet. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's a real shame. A yeah. real shame. But I mean, again, as I said at the very beginning, such an interesting period of a couple of years of of observing the social contract and how this how the studio system wastes money. Subsequently, I've heard some pretty scary stories about Ray. You know, and Some edit- are
1: in print on the internet also. Sure. I think what's really sad is that what happened to you on Mr. Jones has it's been happening on a massive scale in sort of Hollywood for years. You mm. know, what Ray Stark did, lots of other sort of producers who had the the clout, the power to do, they did that to a lot of filmmakers who actually didn't really get to work mm. after that. And I think you were probably maybe fortunate to have made so many features
0: i mean my luck which is the luck of the irish i guess i then stuck to my guns mm-hmm. my contract and i made leaving las vegas yeah. and i made it my way mm-hmm. on super 16 and i didn't have any interference uh while i was making the film well i did a bit but i mean nothing i couldn't deal with and then that film was the success and it's quite funny the opening scene of leaving las vegas has nicholas trying to bum some money from his agent or something yeah and one of the agents sort of says yeah i'm a tristar now and and nicholas says oh say hello to say hello to mike and he goes oh "Oh, he's not there anymore and i bumped into Mike Medavoya years later and he said was that meant to be me and i went yes (laughs) Hmm. and i think that then gave me you know an extended shelf life after leaving las vegas for a couple more movies you know which before i decided to pack my bags and come back to england but
1: well, that's actually another interesting point that I wanted to touch on. So you, you said that you commuted. So for a good 15 years, you were making films in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, why didn't you sort of decide to sort of just not settle, but buy something there and sort of have a place where you could go stay? Because you were all, you know, you were going there. You made, I think, eight or nine features out mm-hmm. there.
0: I guess I never, never really intended to live there. Yeah. I just liked working there. and. Um, and it was a different universe too. Also important to say this: despite all those problems, despite the social contract issue, you know, which by the way exists in every every job, every, every job. Hollywood was always kind to me in the mm. sense that the British film industry never was. I have yeah. to say that. I mean, I always find it hard to get arrested back in England. I've never worked for the BBC. Yeah, I've never been bafted, and I don't want to be. But it's just like there is a kind of mark of something, whereas within the Hollywood system, I had my failures, but then they'll then allow you a success. And then they kind of go, okay, you're back, you know, you're back in the club. Yeah. No, okay, you know, so it's always negotiable. And ultimately, I could work. And as you say, I don't know how, how many films it was, but I did. I worked consistently for that whole period. Yeah,
1: because correct me if I'm wrong, but Stormy Monday did well in the U.S., but it didn't do well in the U.K., did it? Right. No, correct. And that's why you got the call to go to the States sure. and you made Internal Affairs, which, sure. was, like, which was successful. Yeah. In- it was really Hollywood that gave you the chance to sort of become, if you will...
0: I mean, you know, the social contract actually is much stronger here. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's much easier to joke about it in Hollywood because they're better stories. Mm -hmm. But actually, in an insidious kind of way, the thing I've always detested about Britain is the class system.
1: Yeah, it still exists.
0: You know, my dad comes from sort of Anglo-Irish upper middle. My mother's very working class north of England. Mm. And when I came to London, I was... Or constantly made aware of and pointed out to me that I was from the wrong class. I'll give you a very good example. When mm. I did the Browning version with the lovely Greta Skaki, mm. who became a you know, a great friend. And she told me that when she decided to do the film, she was talking to some friends and posh friends. And this man said, Oh, that's wonderful, Greta. And who's directing it? You know, and she said, Oh Mike Figgis. Said, Mike Figgis, but he's not one of us. <laughs> and meaning he's not an old Etonian. So I've always detested that side of our culture, and it's not like it's ever going to go away. It's so ingrained. No, and I think the
1: America, well, I'll call it the United States of America, rather, has always been more open to sort of recruiting talent. Like, if you're good at something, you can come here and do yeah. stuff for and us. and then you
0: can fail, and you can fuck off, and, then, and we'll, then you can come back. we'll
1: mess with you, mm. like, we'll make it difficult for you, but you can come back. Yeah. You know. um, I had a question about Mr. Jones, uh, the film... So do you think maybe if it weren't such like a mainstream studio picture that you, because, and you alluded to it a little bit with Leaving Las Vegas, that you may have been maybe more successful in making something about bipolar disorder? Because I'm thinking about the era in in which it was made was early 90s. It hadn't been really, mental illness maybe hadn't really been treated properly on screen in a big uh, studio picture. Maybe still hasn't, by the way, I don't know, but...
0: Well, it's an interesting question. You know the, uh, the Silver Linings film, you know? Yeah,
1: Silver Linings Playbook. Which is about Yeah, he's bipolar, he's bipolar. Yeah. 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 It's David O. Uh, Russell, I think, right?
0: And he's a tough, edgy filmmaker, mm. but... That's a soft movie. Ballroom dancing and, you know, happy ending and, Mm. you know, dysfunctional families. So it's like it's a kind of slightly dark social comedy, whereas the ending of the original Mr. Jones is pretty dark. She talks him off a cliff and basically says, you know, you have to recognize it's a disease and it can be treated. And his point being the classic response, which is I love my highs. I I don't want to take lithium and I don't want to be neutralized. It was a dark statement. I don't think, given the pedigree that was brought to the film with, with Eric Roth, for example, yeah. and, you know. So Eric's a very, very good writer, but he writes a certain kind of Hollywood film. He's not Ken Loach, mm-hmm. and nor, nor does he want to be, nor do they want to make those kind of films. So they're making entertainments. So well, Hollywood, when they mess with serious issues, sometimes a problem because it's like how, how far you're going to mess with it, and the answer is not that deep.
1: Yeah, i think the era like for example I, I you know when you mentioned sort of films about mental illness the one obviously that comes to mind is one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah where i mean jack nicholson's character isn't crazy or i'm sorry if i'm using no. wrong term here but a lot of the other characters are but that was made at a time where anything kind of went you know well you've
0: got jack nicholson as a and also you've got jack nicholson as a major force and it had been a play
1: yeah, and, that's right. That's and right. Ken is it Ken kesey Ken kesey.
0: had already established himself as a major kind of social figure so they weren't going to and directed by milos Forman. milos yeah. you know. So the pedigree is very different. Yeah. And also it's that time you know going back to that book I told you about, you know. Great Goodbye. The Great Goodbye where you have people like Bob Evans and producers have a have a, have a great period now. Of of being Maverick and and following And I think also um Michael Douglas. Michael
1: right? Douglas and Saul Zients. It was yeah. those two, yeah. So, you
0: know, some interesting, you know, like edgy people kind yeah. of involved in the project. By the time we get to my period it's all gone very controlled again and and soft yeah and, and you still have Ray Stark in his impotency still kind of wanting to piss on the tree mm-hmm. uh, and be and be a mark
1: I'd have loved to have seen your version of it though
0: I mean I screened it um for a bunch of people at a writers conference uh, chaired by Agnieszka Holland mm. who's who's I adore but yeah. she. She's incapable of lying. and She sort of went, it's not that great, <laughs> <laughs> You know, Everyone's going, oh my God, this masterpiece. She's going, yeah, it's still got a lot of problems in it. You know? And I went, yes, oh yes, thanks, Agnieszka. <laughs> you know? And it did. But I mean, that was my first cut. And one would have hoped from there to tighten up and tighten up. I think it would have been a better film than the one they released. I think it would have had more integrity and would have done more for, for bipolarity and people who suffer from that. So I think we're running out of time. Thanks, Ali.
1: Thanks for having me. Mate.
0: What should we talk about next?
1: Sound and film, in Hollywood, in Las Vegas, Brownie version. Top 10s. Top 10s.